Good morning. We'd like to welcome you to church this morning. Though we are few, yet we are mighty. <laughs> Please feel free to move as forward as you would like. Let's stand together as we sing. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Today is the first Sunday of Advent, the Sunday of hope. 
Our hope is in God and in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the one appointed by God to be judge of all things. He is the one through whom God has promised to save and redeem his people. We light this candle today to remind us that he is our hope and the hope of all the world. We thank God for the promises he has made to us and for the light he has brought into the world. Let's pray. O God of hope, Emmanuel, God with us, we pray you to send your light into our hearts at this time. Help us to be ready for the day and the hour of Christ's final appearing. Live in us and help us to live in you. By the power of the Holy Spirit, transform us so that our worship, our celebration, our time of preparation may be pleasing to you, both now and forevermore. Amen. Please stand as we continue to worship together.
This time I'd like to invite the ushers forward to receive our morning tithes and offerings.
Be still, my soul, the Lord is on thy side. Bear patiently the cross of grief or pain. Leave to thy God to order and provide. In every change, he faithful will remain. Be still, my soul, thy best, thy heavenly friend. Through thorny ways leads to a joyful land. Be still, my soul, thy God doth undertake to guide the future as he has the past. Thy hope, thy confidence, let nothing shake. All now mysterious shall be bright at last. Be still, my soul, the waves and winds still know. His voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. In you I rest. In you I found my hope, in you I trust, you never let me go. I place my life within your hands alone. Be still, my soul. Be still, my soul, the hour is hasting on. When we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief and fear are gone. Sorrow for God, love's purest joy restored. Be still, my soul, when change and tears are past. All safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. that stillness of God's grace and presence with us, we come and we offer our prayers. If you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please come and join me.
Father, we thank you for this vivid reminder of your call to come into your presence and to be still and to know you. As we embark in this Advent season, a time when we might particularly think of silence, pondering, Open our eyes to who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. Father, today we come and offer our prayers for ourselves and for others who are in need. We think particularly of people who are grieving today. Pray for Diane Emmons and her family, the recent death of her mother, and for others who are feeling a sense of loss, pain, and grief. We pray, Father, for those who are struggling with illness, physical pain. We pray today especially for Ellis Brotsman and for Vesta Mullen and Tim Nichols, Bruce Brenneman. We pray for Bill Roski and for Bevrette and Micah Christensen and for Linda Roth and for Alton Shea and Isla Shea, for Dick Gould and Edna Howard and Crystal Blake and Emily Crickler and others who are on our minds today. We pray for your healing power in each of them and for your presence, for an awareness of your presence with them. Lord, we pray for the work beyond us of your kingdom. We thank you for the work of the Wesleyan Native Ministries in the Midwest. And as at this time of year, as there are special activities of music and drama and outreach, we pray, Father, for the Sailways and for their church, that they would be a beacon of light and hope into the lives of people who simply do not feel that hope. We pray that you would, you would minister to them and through them, especially in this season. We pray for all who are continuing to, to deal with the Ebola crisis. We pray for healing, for an end to this epidemic. May your gracious hand be evident. We pray for our brothers and sisters who face opposition and worse. Give them courage. Give them strength. Help them to know of our love, our support, our prayers. And I pray that they would have a sense that their lives are inspiring us in our lives. Father, during this Advent season, Give us ears to hear you. Give us eyes to see you. Give us hands to reach out for you. And feet to go where you lead us.
We pray, Lord, that during this time of thinking about the coming of Christ and his light in this world, make us people of light because of Christ in us. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayers. We offer them in the strong name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who came into this world as a baby, who went to the cross for our sins, who rose to give us life, and who will return to come back for us. We pray in his strong name. Amen. The scripture reading for this morning is Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13. Following the tradition of the church, I invite you to stand for the reading of the gospel. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. This is the word of the Lord. We're here in worship today. As I mentioned, this is the uh, first Sunday of Advent. It's the beginning of the church year. And uh, the word Advent uh, comes from Latin, means to come or coming. And uh, it is a time to think about the the first coming of Christ into the world as a baby. And one of the things that we have done for a number of years to help with that is just a little devotional guide for you that you can use on the Sundays of Advent. 
Uh, you can use it by yourself or uh, with some other people or family. Uh, it has some reading, some uh, scriptures, just a brief meditation, a carol to sing. Uh, so those are in the back table, and they also came with the highlights this week if you wanted, uh, if you got those. But if not, feel free to pick up as many as you need back there on the table. And uh, we found as a family, it's just a great way to just help focus our attention on Christ in a season of the year where the, our attention tends to get distracted from Christ. When we talk about, the, the, about Advent and the coming of Jesus in the world... We, of course, first think about the coming in Bethlehem. And that's obviously extremely significant. But through the history of the church, the season of Advent has also been a time to talk about the second coming of Jesus. The second Advent of Christ. And as I peruse the questions that you, uh, you sent to me uh, last spring... A number of them, or some of them, were related to the second coming of Jesus. And so it seemed to make sense to make that a part of our Advent thoughts and conversation. One of the, one of the things that I have figured out, uh, and I've been, as I've been pondering the question about the return of Christ, is I, I think I've figured out when exactly Christ is going to come back. So I'm going to give you a heads up about it, and you'll know. I've, I've, I've narrowed down the date to August 19th, 2059, about 3.42 in the morning. And you're probably thinking, what? Well, I, I choose that date because that is my 100th birthday. <laughs> and according to my mother, just about to the minute. I figure, hey, it's as good as any other date, right? Because here's the bottom line. We love date setting. But Jesus says, nobody knows the day or the hour. He says, the angels don't know. He says, he doesn't know. Only the Father knows. And yet, we keep trying to set dates. There are people all through history who have said to others, I figured it out. I've done the math. I've worked through all of the prophecies of Scripture. And, I've, and it's going to be on this day. And... Amazingly, there are people who say, really? That's awesome. Sign me up. And they sell everything they have and they go follow them. And they're disappointed. Why is it that we are so enamored with date setting? What is it about that? Is, is, is it a sense of control? Probably. Is it, is it because we, we really want to, to get in on the inside track of what God's going to do? Probably. There's probably a little bit of a sense of feeling superior to other people who just keep doing what they're doing and we know better and we figured it out. Probably. But Jesus keeps telling us that's not what this is about. The whole idea of his second coming is not to figure out a date. It is to prepare. That's what it's about. And every one of the parables, like the one we read this morning, every one of the stories, every one of the, things that, the things that Paul and Peter and others write about these, this event, all of them are in the context of preparing, watching, being ready. You get a sampling of just some of the things that Jesus says as you peruse the Gospels. Here's just a few passages from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He says, therefore, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. 
Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Be always on the watch. Watch. Prepare. Be ready. That's the message of all of these things that the scriptures talk to us about related to the return of Christ. So what does it look like to prepare? Well, lots of things that Scripture talks to us about in terms of preparation. But one of the things that comes back to me, especially as you look at this parable today, is this sense of preparation is related to people who are wise and people who are foolish. And Jesus says the people who are wise are prepared. The people who are foolish are not. Now, this isn't the first time Jesus has divided people as wise and foolish. Back at the end of Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a little little story, a little parable, and says there were two guys who were building houses. And one of them built their house on a rock, And he's called wise. And the other one builds his house on sand. And he's called foolish. Because when the storm comes, when the the rain and the wind hits those houses, the one on the rock stands. The one on the sand crumbles. Now that story, we, you know, we even, we used to sing a little song about that in, Sunday school. Do you guys see that song? The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Remember that one, wise man? And we tend to just see that sort of out of context. But it's the last thing Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. And I think Jesus is saying, people who follow what I'm trying to tell you about on the Sermon on the Mount, the people who do these things, who are committed to this, these are people who build their house on the rock and are wise. And the people who ignore it are the people who build their house on sand and are foolish. And so what do the people who are wise look like? They are people, Jesus says, who are poor in spirit. As opposed to being arrogant. These are people who aren't afraid to acknowledge their sin and to confess it. These are people who who grieve over their sin and the, and the pain of the world. These are people who, who are hungering for God, who will spend their lives, their energy, their resources, understanding God and, and worshiping God and following God. These are people who see persecution because of their faith as a blessing from God. Who are the wise people? They're people who, when struck on one cheek, turn the other. These are people who forgive their enemies and even more love their enemies. These are people who go the extra mile for another person. These are people who say it's not about amassing wealth. It's not how much I can get. It's actually how much I can give away. These are people who practice the spiritual disciplines, not so people will look at them and say, wow, they are so spiritual. 
but who practice the spiritual disciplines in a way that people don't even realize they're doing it. These are people who don't judge the speck in that person's eye because they realize this log sticking out of their own eye. Wise and foolish. If you've been in the church a while, all that stuff makes sense. We've heard that for all of, probably all of our lives. But that's not how the rest of the world understands wise and foolish. You start going around the rest of the world and saying, if you want to be wise and successful, give away everything you have. Really? That's not how we see it. We say, if you want to be wise, be vulnerable. Wait, that's not how we see it. You want to be wise? Love your enemies instead of trying to get back at them. No, I'm sorry. That's not how things work in this world. See, what we forget is that being wise is, looks, is almost the exact opposite of how most of the rest of our culture and our world views living wisely. How they view success. And Jesus keeps telling us, building your house on the rock, being wise, preparing for the second coming means you live in a way that is different from how the rest of the world lives. We value what is things differently than the rest of the world values them. And what's so difficult is that we keep getting sucked into the trap of how everybody else thinks. This, this season of the year is a perfect example of that. I mean, there's nothing wrong at all with gift giving and, and enjoying the things that everybody else enjoys about the season. But somewhere in the midst of that, we have come to understand that first and foremost, it's about Jesus. And I think it's easy for us to forget that. Now, what Jesus says here at the end of this parable is you don't know the day or the hour, so be ready. And that implies that we have to be ready, prepared, watching, ready at any moment and every moment. Yeah. See, we sometimes think that being prepared is this momentary decision. It's that we, we make this decision for Christ and then we're done. But... Being a disciple of Jesus is about living for him all the time. Every moment, all of life, and everything about life, our jobs, our families, our private time, our public time, what we do when we're in church and what we do when we're not in church, all of it is about what it means to follow Jesus and to be prepared and ready and building our house on that solid rock and being wise as the kingdom views wisdom. It's not about just this moment or that moment or when people are watching us or when we're supposed to be spiritual. Anybody can do that. Christ in us means it's about every moment. And it doesn't mean we're perfect, not by any means, but it's the passion of our hearts, it's the desire of our hearts to be continually thinking about Jesus and what it means to be a disciple of Jesus.
I think that's one of the reasons why we don't get any date setting in Scripture. Because if we had a date, if it really was August 19, 2059, you know what we would do. Human nature, right? We'd say, well, I'll just live how I want to until maybe, well, let's make it August 1st, just to make sure. Or maybe 2058. You know, it's got a little bit of time to make up, right? Isn't that human nature? I, I kind of assume that's why so many stores are open on Christmas Eve, even into the evening, because there are all these husbands who haven't done their shopping yet. I read somewhere that it's one of the busiest shopping days of the year. Why do we do that? Because we know we can. We know that we can do that. And in fact, Amazon's made it even easier now because with Prime, you can get your stuff in the next day if you just beat the deadline. And human nature is such that we would wait till the last minute. We wouldn't think about every moment, every day, all the time. We'd say, well, let me just do what I want to do until I get to where I have to do something else. And of course, that belies our skewed view of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Because being a disciple of Jesus is not first and foremost about getting into heaven. It's about living in the presence of Christ now. It's about being filled with the Spirit now so that we experience joy and grace and love and mercy and all of the things of Christ now. It's not about waiting till then, as awesome as that's going to be. But it's about Christ in us now. And to prepare to be ready to watch means that we live in that anticipation of Christ in us and with us now. And the joy of that. When I think about this, this preparation, I, I, my mind goes to you know, this whole idea, again, of date setting and, and the uh, struggle that the Thessalonians were having with that. You know, Paul writes to them in 2 Thessalonians, and I, we get the sense that the, the issue is some of them have said, we figured out the date, it's just a couple of weeks off, and so they sell all their possessions, they give everything away, they pack up their bags, and they go sit on the mountain, and they wait, and they wait. And they wait. After a few days, they start getting hungry. And they're cold. So they come back to the church and their brothers and sisters and say, can we have some food? We need something to eat. We need a place to stay. We got rid of everything. And they do this for a while because they still think that the day is coming. And Paul writes to them and says, don't be idle like that. That's not what waiting, preparing, watching is about. Watching isn't sitting and just at the kitchen window waiting for Jesus to come. It's about living your life. Of course, you have the other side of that. Again, with date setting is sort of what we're talking about. Or human nature says we'll kind of do what we want till we get to that moment. That's more of what the Corinthians are wrestling with. They're wrestling with this sense of, well, we can live however we want to. We can be as immoral as we want to because we've got time. I read about a family of sitting around the dinner table on Sunday and the sermon that day was about the second coming and they were talking about this and the kids were asking questions and one of the teenage sons said, so what does it mean to prepare? And the father said, well, you know, there's lots of things we don't know, but the best way to prepare is just live each day as if it were your last. 
And the teenage son said, you know, I tried that once and you grounded me for a month. (laughs) That's not exactly what we're talking about. But it's that sense of, of, of simply living as Christ calls us to live. You know, John Wesley... Such an amazing guy. He was asked one day, what would you, how would you live differently? What would you do differently in your life if you knew Jesus was returning tomorrow? And he said, I wouldn't do anything differently. Wow. That's a person who understands that you live in the moment with Christ. Now, as I ponder this whole idea of preparing and watching my mind always drifts back to when I was in seminary. For the first three years I was in seminary, I worked in the emergency room at the University of Kentucky Medical Center. That was a great job. I loved that job. Um, I didn't do anything medical, just so you, you know, don't set your minds at ease. I wasn't doing surgery or anything. But I, I did clerical work. You know, I'm your, everybody's favorite person that you have to talk to before you can see a doctor Give me your insurance card, what's your name, address, all that stuff. And I want your money. That was the last thing we always did too. But, I, you know, I, I saw a lot of things. It was, it was exciting sometimes. And sometimes, quite frankly, it was boring. Nothing going on. But the one thing that I noticed about working in the emergency room is preparation was vital. And preparation was not anxiety because we didn't know what might come through the door next. You didn't see people pacing the floor saying, I wonder what's going to happen. I wonder what the next thing is going to be. I wonder what's going to be. And nobody was stationed outside the doors where the ambulance pulled up with, a, with binoculars waiting for the ambulance to, to turn the corner and arrive. How they prepared was as soon as a patient left a room, it would be cleaned and restocked. Every time. It didn't matter if you're talking about just a, one of the examining rooms or trauma room. As soon as that patient left that room, the custodial people would come and clean it, and the nurses would go in and restock it. And once that was done, they didn't have to fret or be anxious or worry because you knew whatever walked through the door, we were ready. Everybody was trained, everyone had been through procedures. We all knew what we were supposed to do. We all knew what our job was and how to do our job. And so that meant that when nothing was happening, we weren't sitting there fretting, wondering whether we were going to be able to do it or not. We were confident that we could do it. And so life went on. And we spent a lot of time talking about UK basketball and eating together and life. Had a lot of spiritual conversations with some of the people I worked with. And you can do that because you're not anxious about what's to come. You're prepared. And you just live life. And I think that's God's calling on us. It's not to live in anxiety and fear and worry. It's to know that we are following Christ. That that's the desire of our hearts. He's working in us when we want him to work in us. And you can live in freedom and joy. I think one of the things about the second coming as I've been pondering this this week is that as I think about my own experience as a young person, it was predominantly about fear. 
The minute the word second coming arose, the first emotion was anxiety and fear. Now, maybe that was the movies that they showed us, you know, as kids, to scare you half to death about it. But it, it didn't create a sense of joy. It created a sense of anxiety and fear. But when I read the scriptures, the people who are need to be afraid are the people who have no relationship with Jesus. The people who have a relationship with God don't need to be afraid. We rejoice. We celebrate. It's going to be the most awesome day in the world when Jesus returns. Paul writes to Titus and says, calls it the blessed hope of God's people. It's joy. This, this parable ends with the, bride, the virgins going in and what? Celebrating a great feast of the wedding banquet. It's a time of celebration and excitement. It's not a time to be afraid. And we ought to celebrate this. Because God is calling us to rejoice and to celebrate his coming. One of the things that I, I think is important for us to, to think about is that I actually prefer the second appearing of Christ as opposed to the second coming of Christ. And it, you know, it's, it's just two words. And there's nothing wrong with saying the second coming. But the thing I like about the second appearing is that when you talk about second coming, it almost implies that Jesus hasn't been in our lives. He's gone. He's out somewhere else. We, we have no, con, no connection to him at all. And someday he's going to come back into our lives. But when we read the scriptures... We find that Jesus is with us through the Spirit. What's going to happen is that he's going to reveal himself. And the presence that we might not always be able to know, now we'll know. And all the ways in which Christ feels hidden to us, he will be revealed. It's it's why I'm, I'm, I'm less of a fan of of even the whole idea of rapture theology. You know, it's been ingrained in us. It's a part of our theology. It's part of our, you know, our American mindset. But quite frankly, that really hasn't been a part of the church for all that long. Because it is this sense of, you know, Christ is going to, to come back into our lives because he's been absent and take us away. And the reality is, he's been here all along. He's going to reveal himself in a way that we haven't seen up to this point. And we're going to know him as he is. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, we now see through a glass darkly. But when he returns, it's all going to be clear. He's going to reveal himself. And we are going to be with him in a way that we haven't known before. It's not going to be frightening. It's going to be awesome. Now, granted, Scripture does tell us that on the day Christ appears, there will be judgment. He will come to judge, as the creed says, to judge the living and the dead. And there will be judgment. But it's judgment in grace. He's not going to come in judgment and vengeance. It's going to be judgment in grace. I mean, John's... 
tells us, Jesus says that he came into the world not to condemn the world. That's not his purpose for coming. His purpose for coming is to set the world free. To give us eternal life. I don't know if this is exactly right. You know, all these, all the metaphors we try to come up with eventually break down. But what it made me think of when I was in, in college and we had a new religion professor who came and my junior year, and we took his class in the Pentateuch from him, and wow, that was a shock to us. You know, a new professor, first of all, and that's always, you know, they always expect more out of you until they realize that you're not in graduate school. But he just, his demands on us were so high. I, I don't think I hardly ever had a test, even in seminary, that was as difficult as his tests. But he graded with an amazing amount of grace. If he could figure out how you got to an answer, and he would take time to try to think, try to put his mind into ours, and to think how we got from there to there, he would give us as much credit for that answer as he possibly could. And the fact that his exams were difficult meant that we studied harder, and man, we learned a ton. And he actually is one of the first people who gave to me a a love for learning that I really hadn't had much before that. And the difficulty of the exams forced us to really study and give ourselves to it. But we always knew that as hard as they were, they were going to be graded with a sense of grace. And I sort of have this sense of, in a certain way, that that's with Christ with us. I mean, he says, be holy. He says, follow me with your whole heart. The expectations are that that we give him everything we have. But he knows how often we fall short. And it's his grace. It's his grace that sets us free. It's his grace that redeems us. It's his grace that gives us the power to live in any way positively and holy. And his coming is not about his vengeance on us. It's about his grace revealed to us. Sometimes I think we view the second appearing of Jesus as somewhat of an appendage to our faith. It's sort of this thing stuck on the side of what's really important. But when we read the scriptures, it's at the center of our faith. Because without the second appearing of Christ, we have no hope. Without the second appearing of Christ, I mean, the resurrection is awesome, but what does that really mean for us eternally? Without the second appearing of Christ, there is no justice. Without the second appearing of Christ, the way the world views everything is the way it's going to be. But with the second appearing of Christ... What Jesus calls wisdom really is. And building our house on the rock really is the way to do it. And as Paul writes at the end of 1 Corinthians 15, if because Christ is returning, because Christ will appear, all of our labor is not in vain, but it has purpose and meaning and value and significance. And we can rejoice. 
if you, as you think about your life, if you, if you don't have a relationship with Christ, then what a great day to do that. It's just open your heart to him. But if you do have a relationship with Christ, if the desire of your heart is to follow him, however feebly you may feel you're doing that, and see his appearing as grace and joy and something we anticipate with excitement because Christ is coming. He is revealing himself. He is going to... We're going to see him face to face because we're his children. And his coming is rooted in his love for every one of us. Father, we thank you for your power and your grace in Christ. Lord, there's so much about the the second appearing of Jesus that we do not understand. It boggles our minds. But help us to see that because Christ is, is coming, we have hope. And life has meaning. And our journey with you is wise. Fill our hearts with that hope and joy and grace. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.